Thanks for joining us for our series on the gospel and its ramifications for church life. These messages work through the heart of the gospel within the overall story of God and then deal with several outcomes of this good news in Jesus. How he creates a new people for God by his spirit, defines and upholds their identity through baptism and communion, and sends them as ministers of reconciliation to the world as foretastes of God's coming kingdom. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. It is kind of cool to think about that probably like, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 hours ago, kind of when the rest of the world, the other side of the world was waking up, you have believers who are worshiping and naming the same Lord that we do this morning and that we sing about together. Kind of as the, as the sun came up across, you have different worshipers worshiping in each time zone and new ones coming again to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And it reminds us that we are far bigger than just Cornerstone. We're far bigger than even just their city, the gospel witness that's here. But Jesus Christ has gone and given and planted through different people and through God's work to all the nations. And we still look, and even as Matt prayed, we pray that that would happen truthfully in the Riyamalayu people and so many others that have not proclaimed and known Jesus Christ. We also remember that it's bigger than us than just our time period, too, that for Literally thousands of years, people have proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ and have loved him and given their lives for him. And so we stand together with so many uh, that have loved Jesus. Um, And it's not a new thing, but rather it's the faith that has been passed to us through the apostles. Um, Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Take your Bible to Ephesians 4. Um, while we do this, um, let me just make a take a moment and explain our direction over the next few weeks. Um, we were planning to preach on the Lord's Supper, and we will, but not today. Um, we have thoroughly enjoyed the study of the Lord's Supper together, especially as elders, and uh, have seen the importance of this beautiful ordinance, or you may call it a sacrament. And in the process, we've noticed um, that many of us don't have a good understanding of what is happening in the Lord's Supper. Um, And we've enjoyed it, but we've noticed that for most of us, we respond with thankfulness and dutiful obedience to the supper, um, but we don't see it as much more than a somber time of individual reflection and obedience. And as we've considered teaching on the Lord's Supper, we recognize that there is a lot for us to digest. It's pregnant with meaning over the, especially the whole scope of history, specifically in the Old Testament and Passover. But as we come into the new covenant and realize what Jesus Christ has done for us, it is a whole new and wonderful and expanded thing because of what Jesus has done. And so we realize it's important, and we're going to give a little more time to it than we had originally planned to do. We are going to give it two full weeks, and then even a course seminar night that we can actually work through it together. So because of the Christmas season, where we're at, and recognizing that a lot of folks will be very busy during this time, and some will just flat out be away for family, which is good. Um, we will as well be away right around the Christmas season. We'll be back for that uh, the end of the year, but uh, we realize that that's true. What we're decided to do then is going to take and, and tackle the Lord's Supper for a few weeks in the new year. In January, specifically, we'll focus on biblical community. We'll see what the Bible says to, about that and what it forms us to make us like and how we then are to love one another. 
but then we will work through um, in, the, in, in February for two weeks, uh, work through the Lord's Supper together. So that's just a little bit of an idea of why we're not doing that this morning. But in all of this, even as we are discussing and working through as elders, we would ask you to pray for us. And that's not just like, uh, like a lip service. We desperately need you to pray for us. Uh, we are given the responsibility to lead and to teach and to make decisions and do the best thing that we can to make every man perfect in Christ. And I think that you know this when we say it. We're, we're dead serious about it. We recognize that we will answer for the people that God has brought to Cornerstone. And we're so thankful for that, but we also take it very seriously. So we'd pray for, we'd ask you to pray for us for wisdom. And so as we do this, we do it in, a, in, a, in the best way possible for the sake of all of our souls. Um, that being said, uh, we're going to go and actually go from the Lord's Supper, which we'll come back to. We're going to finish the last part of what we had decided to do, which is every member a minister from Ephesians 4. So go ahead and take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read the first 16 verses, and then we're going to take a minute and pray, and then we'll come uh, and, and we'll get into the text. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you for refuge and renewal. We cry out asking you to work in us today. We submit our hearts to you and ask that you would both teach us and form us by the power of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of your word. We, we, we thank you for the incredible gift of the Bible we turn to it today to, to hear you speak. And may we have ears to hear and minds to think. And Lord, would, would you cut us to the heart so that we might have affections for you alone. Bless your people, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. 
Uh, from what the internet tells me, Amazon currently has over 600,000 employees, uh, each of them striving to help the majority of us who still haven't quite finished off our Christmas shopping yet. Um, this organization is an enormous machine, um, huge warehouses, massive shipping capabilities, and all at the click of a button or just the swipe of your finger on, on your phone. In 2017, they were able to ship 5 billion items to their Prime members. I mean, this is an impressive organization who's able to do this. They've mastered some of the keys to productive work, um, efficient processes, and a culture of continual innovation. They're very good at this. And for this to happen, though, Jeff Bezos must own the soul of all his employees. Or at least, as I've talked to a few of them, they feel like this is true. Now, I'm being a little facetious here, but you know what I mean here about how much important it would be for those 600,000 employees to work well together to accomplish the task. As good as automated systems are and as great as potential drone technology is, the only way that Amazon can possibly do and succeed at all the things they're trying to do is through the proper use of their people. They've got to do it well. It's the greatest resource that we know of is human capital all that that's in, bound up in people themselves. And we all understand this. Even if we don't work for Amazon, we get this. Many of you work for businesses that rely on the unity and cohesion of a group of people working hard together to accomplish a task. We know that when a group works well, they can accomplish a great deal. A well-run organization has a hard-working workforce. They will understand one another they will understand structure and how it works together. They will use the strengths that each one provides for the good of the whole to make sure that they can get the stuff done they need to. This is a type of organization can make a significant impact in the field that they're working in. But even a group that's that big and that has that great of a product or a service and that much money can still very easily fall apart if the people don't work to do the, what they're supposed to or decide not to work together. It's very easy for that to fall apart. And again, it's any level, whether it's the beginning level of someone just coming off the street to start working at the very low part, or at the, all the way at the top. All of them must work together for this thing to actually work. Internal conflict and people just not doing their job well can easily bring a company to ruin. This is true for most any organization, but it's also true for any organism consider for a moment, like a, a, any living thing as well. So we're talking about an organization, people working in the spots. But if you consider, I don't know if it, most people probably at least taken somewhat of a biology class through their time in school, you know that the living world is made up of billions of complex systems. I mean, it's the truth is even in our own human body, how many different things are going on to work together to accomplish the task of being a person. I mean, it's amazing, and even these systems have many inside of them intricate little parts working together. And then you go down to the cellular level, and then we're talking down to the atomic level, and all these things working together to actually produce what's supposed to be a human being. These systems work in concert to produce a healthy body. These parts were never meant to be functioning by themselves, alone. I mean, you guys understand this, but we don't see livers and skins and toenails and like heels just growing out there doing their own thing. Those only ever make sense inside a person's body or part of a person's body. 
each part of the body was made to help the rest of the body be a body. Like, that's the whole point. The design is that the parts work together for the mutual strength and success of the one whole body. Now, when we come to the book of Ephesians, Paul glories in the fact that Christians have been called to one body of Christ. And by called, I mean that each of them has been made a member of the church through the gospel. Now, a few weeks ago, we've talked about what is the gospel. It's the good news that the righteous, holy, just creator God has made a way for our sin to be justly punished. He cannot clear the guilty. He must be just and holy. And we all understand that everyone in history has sinned against him, except Jesus Christ. And everyone, therefore, is culpable, and he cannot clear the guilty. The good news, though, is that God can punish that very sin and save us. He does this through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why the cross is necessary. It's not just an example of sacrificial love. It actually took the penalty for our sin. And so as we look back at this, we realize it's only by faith that we repent of our sin and submit to him as our Savior and Lord. And in that action, he makes us his own, his people. In the book of Ephesians, Paul explains it this way, and you probably know this language. You were dead. You were dead, not like partially alive or like you had a little bit going. No, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. But that's not all. In our series as we've been working through this, we've seen that not only are we alive to God on our own, as though there's a tether between Chris Lowndes and God, but more than that, Paul goes on, he says, remember that you were at, the one, at one time separated from Christ. Remember that you were uh, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, God's people, the other people who are connected to him, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. You were not part of God's people. But, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, by his death. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what he's talking about both one, he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. He's talking about Israel and the rest of the world. And what he is saying is that through his death, the dividing wall of hostility has been ripped down by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, in himself, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, Paul goes even further to clarify what's going on. In chapter 3, he's going to say the mystery of this whole thing is that now the Gentiles are co-heirs with you. That they now are in Christ, which is unthinkable to a Jew. But the mystery of the gospel is that Jesus has made one new man. They're not just some, as, you know, as, the, as an outsider looking in would see this, this organization, this church. They would see a religious, political organization that had many different parts. 
many different attitudes. You have the slaves and you have the freemen, you have the Jews and the Gentiles, and they kind of all separate and do this certain thing, and we kind of expect them to act in that way. Paul's making it very clear, no. There's no dividing wall of hostility anymore. It's been torn down, and you are one. There's nothing that divides this church into parts over there or parts over there. In reality, you have been made one people. So in chapter 3, he's telling us the mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs with us. They have been made one in Christ. There aren't divisions that allow one part to function outside of the body like a heel over here doing its own thing. It cannot. It doesn't make any sense for us to think about it that way. We've been made one in Christ. And this, then, is how we enter into chapter 4. With all this truth, Paul has laid it all out there, but now he's ready to tell us what it means for us and how then we should react and what we should do about it. Paul is going to exhort those who have been reconciled to God and one another in one body to live according to this true identity with love for one another, patience, and eagerly waiting and trying to maintain unity, their oneness together. He's going to go back and explain what God is doing here and how we ought to do this thing as part of one body and what we're trying to get to. So let's go ahead and take a look ourselves. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling that you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's time for you and I, he's saying, to live out who you actually are. This is truth. It's time for you to do so. I'm urging you to do what you already are. What he's saying here is making it clear. Your calling, your salvation, you believe in the gospel, has made you all into one body of believers. The truth that we're, what he's talking about here is not new, guys. We know this already to be true. We know what happened in the gospel. We know that this has made us a new people. The problem is we struggle to actually live as though that's actually true. Now, you and I, here's another example. In Romans 6, you know this one as well, in our personal struggle against and fighting against sin, right? In Romans chapter 6, he gives us the exact same principle. He says this, For if we have been united with him, talk about Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is true. This is reality. This is what happened. Our old man was dead at the cross. But Paul reminds us, even in Romans 6, he says, so you also must consider yourselves or reckon yourselves dead to sin. Even though it's true, the problem is it doesn't feel like it's true in our lives. Even though we know this is what happened at the cross, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The same principle is at action here in, in Ephesians 4. We have been made into one body. That's true. That is actual. This is our new incredible reality. But Paul has to remind us that now we are supposed to live according to that truth. That what he's done in our own hearts through faith and repentance, and submission to the king, and what that's made us a part of. Now we have to act like that actually is happening. And this fleshes out, strangely enough, still in obedience and repentance, walking according to the same way that Jesus has shown us to do. This is done then with humility, patience, gentleness, and a love 
that bears with one another despite the difficulties and the differences between us. I mean, that's what he says here. He says that this is a love that is eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of, of the bond of peace. And I think if we're honest, um, we'd recognize that there's people that we like um, to be around, and it's easy for us to be around, and it's easy for us to keep unity with certain different people, and for others it's far more difficult. And our differences seem to be like, it's better off if I just kind of don't do too much work at this relationship because I don't think it's going to go anywhere. And yet we're called here to maintain, be eager to maintain the bond of peace that we have, the unity in the Holy Spirit. I mean, I think this is a good word for us, that we would respond here, let us also be eager to maintain unity. Let us be ready to act in love to those who God has made part of his body. He explains to the reader that the body that he has created is consistent with his own character, God himself. His intentions is to have a body that worships together, not in a separated manner, but a body that rightly expresses the oneness of God himself. Look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to our call, your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The Ephesian church, and even ours here at Cornerstone, is not to be an expression that looks like the world, an organization. We're not to be that. That's not what he is saying here. We are unfortunately, you know, woefully desirous to look well-run and well-organized, to look more like Amazon, to make sure that we can be really successful. That is not our pattern whatsoever. In fact, if we consider this, I don't think that Amazon keeps posters on their walls that highlight humility, gentleness, patience, loving forbearance when there's any interpersonal conflict within the warehouse. These are not the same things that they use in their HR department to work out the situations. Paul exhorts us to live in this way because it's consistent with God's character and the way that he chooses to work in the world. Within their body, there ought not be a single silo over here and another one over here, but rather we are one body together. There's something even better, though, here. He knows our weakness. Christ does. He knows our needs. He knows where we stumble and fall. And listen to verse 7. But grace was given to each of us, to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift, and therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to man. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He had descended, he, I'm sorry, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul's talking about Jesus, not talking about some random idea of a person that might have done this and we randomly got gifts out. No, no, he's talking about Christ. I love that what he does here in Psalm 68, which for the sake of time, we'll just jump to the meaning. But when we cover Ephesians, we'll, we'll definitely come back to this. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ, who descended from heaven to earth to live amongst men, who condescended, and not only that, he actually was buried in the earth, was also the one, because of his slaying of Satan's sin and death in that act, was able also to rise again and ascend to the right hand of God. This is true. We know this is true. Paul is saying that Christ 
is actually coming, and he now, because of what he has done, gives gifts to his church. Gifts of grace. And, and you know this is true, too. You know that Jesus said to his disciples, it is better for them if he goes away. Why? How, how could that be true? Because the comforter will come. You guys know John 14, Jesus tells us his followers, er, his followers that they will do even greater works when he is going to the Father. Like, like it's going to get better than this, Jesus? Yeah. John 7, 39, we learn that the Spirit is coming, but that he had not come on all believers yet because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He had not yet ascended to the Father. Or in Acts 2, 33, Jesus has been exalted at the right hand of God, has received the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the author stops to tell us that this is the promised Spirit and all his gifts that the church is now experiencing because of the ascended Lord Jesus. The Lord had won the victory over Satan's sin and death, and in so doing, as the conquering king, he bestows these gifts of grace to his people so that they might grow into the body that he has called them to be. Consider this. What he demands, he supports. What he requires of his church, he provides. What a gracious and loving king. I mean, the life and reality of the unity of the body of Christ is made possible by the gifting of Jesus' grace to his people. And what did he give? Well, we, we know that he gave many different gifts through the work of the Holy Spirit. But Paul wants to highlight a few specific things for the body. Remember that his focus here is to explain how Christ gives gifts that are aiding us in bringing together unity. So he's showing us that. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The Lord gave leadership to the body so that it might equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the church with all the things that Jesus had commanded to the apostles. Paul is saying right here that this is how we as a church receive the words of Jesus. If you consider this for a minute, Jesus at the end of Matthew, he tells them, all authority has been given to me. But then he tells the disciples, go and make other disciples. Doing, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And what else? Teaching them everything that I've commanded you. This is apostolic teaching that he is giving to, obviously to his apostles, and then from them, we get what's called the New Testament. All the teaching that Jesus gave to them is recorded for us so that we might know. It's a product of apostolic teaching. It's their equipping, their training, and their living out what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible gift. But for what purpose? Why are the apostles, shepherds, supposed to equip the saints? Is it so that we can kind of pass down the traditions and make sure that they have all the words and we can be confident we know the words of Jesus? Well, well, partly, yes, of course. It's great that we have that. But if we consider this just like some sort of academic religious teaching only, we didn't read the rest of the verse. Why are these leaders equipping the saints? It is because the saints, all the saints, all the different body parts do the work of the ministry. Let that sink in for a minute. 
That means that everyone who is a part of the body of Christ are the ones who are the builders and the ministers, not just elders. The elders are supposed to equip and give this, to equip with all the different things that the scriptures tell pastors to do. But it doesn't say that they're the ones that do all the ministry and all the building up. It is the saints, every single member working in this way. Look what Paul says and follow the logic in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The body of Christ does not operate in such a way that the leaders do all the ministry. The body of Christ does not act like a clergy and layperson split as though the clergy do all the serving and the ministering and the lay people just are kind of like baby birds receiving all the stuff and that's it. He actually says it's on all of the saints to do the ministry of the word and to do that to, to, again, to one another in the building up for the body of Christ. Paul makes it clear that the whole body is equipped because of Christ's gifts to do the work of the ministry and build up the body of Christ. So in this one body, it's not a system of superior Christians and inferior Christians. It's not a system of ministers and receivers. Uh, it actually is a body that works together to build one another up in Christ. Yes, certainly God has granted the apostles and prophets and even shepherds to equip the body, but this doesn't mean that the apostles, prophets, shepherds were somehow at another spiritual level of superiority. Our brothers, and I can, we can say this word, our brothers like Peter, John, James, Paul, they also fought against sin. We've watched some of these spiritual giants still struggle and have to mortify sin the same way that we do today. The differentiation that's made here in this passage is that they are to equip us for the work of the ministry. Now, this equipping obviously is happening in our context through the shepherds, through us as pastors, the five elders. It looks like any of the things that the New Testament talks that we should expect from a pastor to study the word and pray, to teach, to lead, to rebuke and exhort, to shepherd and guard the flock. This is the design that God has given for the edification or the building up, that's the same word, edification or building up of the body of Christ, to equip one another to do this. And in our own time, we're standing here today, today, 2019, we stand on the shoulders of so many other pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists all the way back to the apostles. And even as we read here, we're literally standing on Paul's shoulders as he is teaching us today what it means to be the church. And we, as Cornerstone Bible Church, minister and build one another up because we have been equipped both by Paul and by the shepherds that God has given to us in our own lives. And that's what we're doing here even in this morning as we're preaching the word. That's what we'll do tonight as we lead through this discussion on the budget and how we talk about this new church potential property to own. All that stuff is part of that. This is done through pastoral care even, as we counsel and love and walk by you. That's what's happening behind the scenes in the prayer closets of your elders. They are equipping you to minister and build up the body of Christ through the grace of prayer. Do we really believe that prayer matters? That is what they do. Go to God and ask for your souls to be built up in grace. What a good gift to the church that God would do that. Paul doesn't leave us to wonder 
about these things. Um, oh, let's make a quick aside. By the way, the elders aren't off the hook for ministering and building up either. We also are hearing from one another and being built up to do the ministry of the word to one another. It's not as though my job is just equipping. I don't have to worry about the other things, ministering, building up the body. No, we are all, in a sense, called to this ministry, each one of the saints. And Paul doesn't leave us, though, knowing like only this much. And we're just like, okay, let's figure out how, where we're supposed to go with this. Where is it headed? Look at verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I mean, this goes right back to what we say is our church purpose statement, Colossians 1.28, right? Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone, it's the word we use, right? Mature in Christ perfect in Christ, complete in Christ, whole in Christ. Same word here. In verse 13, this mature manhood idea is the exact same thing that we say our whole purpose is about, that we would pursue this, that we'd make every man perfect in Christ Jesus. We are building one another up in maturity. It's the same word, and we're building one another up to grow like this. We minister to one another in such a way that we are trying our best by the means of the Bible, prayer, encouragement, etc., to actually encourage one another to look and act and be like Jesus. Because guess who the standard is? He says it right here. He says, to the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The standard that we're looking to actually get to is Jesus. Impossible. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. But yet he continues to tell us to go after this. And then may I just make an aside here. It is not as though I say, you, I'm hoping to make you more like Jesus, and you like Jesus, and you like Jesus. That's true. But actually in our context here, he is seeing this body of believers and saying, that's what we're aiming at, that we together look like Jesus Christ. And so this work that we are doing together, the mutual edification, the building up, the ministering to one another, is for the sake that all of us together might look like Christ. That's why he says this. And Paul doesn't stop here. He's going to go on to show us what it looks like not to be mature. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Instead of mature manhood, he describes the church as children. Talks about them in a way that they are unable to understand truth. They're easily swayed by worldly philosophy and unbiblical teaching. I mean, a church that's in that type of a state that stays there will not last long as a Christian testimony of the gospel. A church that is doing it this way is not obeying their Lord to grow up and be built up in him. And part of that means that the members of the body are not taking their jobs seriously. It is not okay, and this is the harsh part of the sermon, it is not okay for you to think that you can just receive and receive and receive and receive. It is your job, along with my job, to minister and to edify and to build up one another. This is the way our Lord made this body. He did not just create me and the other four guys to somehow build this church up. We're to equip, but it is all of our job to edify and to build up and to minister to one another. 
This is what we see in this context. A church that's in this state that would be like this, this immature church, will not last long. But Paul doesn't end on this note, thankfully. He'll end by helping us understand what it looks like for each individual to minister and build up the body of Christ. Verse 15. Instead of this immaturity that we're talking about, this childlikeness, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom, all the whole, from, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you notice here, the charge isn't speaking the truth in love. That's a participle. That's like, duh, you better be speaking the truth in love. The charge here is grow up. And not like the way I tell my kids, hey, grow up. It's like actually like be edified and grow up, become mature, work towards this as an end. In Christ, you ought to be growing towards Christ-likeness. Each member is showing them to be part of the whole and they ought to together become mature. Paul shows us that this happens through the proclamation and the living out of the truth in love. <laughs> and we shouldn't be surprised that the binding agent in all of this is love. I mean, consider for a moment, it's the very thing that the Lord himself expressed in his willingness to give himself, his own life, for the sake of us. Love. That he would take the punishment that we so rightly deserved. This is how, then, we are to speak the truth to each other. This is the way that we're supposed to live it out. The truth in love that sacrifices for one another. It's willing to forbear. Even the people we don't really like that much. It doesn't really matter. Each member grows under the equipping of the shepherds, and then we turn that to ministering grace to one another. And if we don't, it's disobedience. It's really that easy. If we decide that we just want to be takers, then we have not taken this seriously. And so as a believer, one who has been made a member of his body, this is a charge for us to actually minister to one another and to actually build up the body of Christ. Each member has been added to the body by our Lord. Each member has been joined together with others. Each has been equipped to play a part in the body. And when each member is willing to give himself or herself to the work of the ministry and building up, we find that the body is built up in love. And Christ's intentions become more and more solidified for what the church is supposed to be. But we need to notice one more major thing before we leave the passage. I'm going to read those last two verses again, but I want you to ask yourself this question. Who is doing the work? Let's ask ourselves that, all right? Let me, let me read it. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every point with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're to grow into Christ, right? Into Christ. There we go. And it is from Christ that the whole body is generated, comes from. And it is in him that we are joined and held together. The only real relationship I have with any of you begins in Christ. Now, I obviously have a friendship, but the real, lasting, eternal relationship that we have is because of Christ. And we are joined together together 
literally, cosmically, supernaturally because of Jesus Christ. This is real. This is not something that we're making up here. This is what the Bible tells us. Those who know Jesus Christ and have been made new in one body now have this relationship with one another. It is through him then that each person is equipped. And finally, it's Christ who makes the body grow. So the question, who is working here? There's two answers, right? Obviously, the whole urging here of Paul is saying, hey, build one another up. But here we find it is Jesus who is building his church. We know this to be true. Jesus said, I will build my church. And yet he calls us to the task of coming underneath his lordship and headship and working to build one another up in love. It is us who minister and build, but it is Christ who builds up the church through the obedience of his saints. So I'll leave us with this thought, remembering. In the gospel, Jesus Christ brought us together in one body. We do make choices day in, day out, and this is one of his graces to you to hear this body, that we must act as what we are, which is to minister to one another. I asked you earlier on to pray for the elders. That is your grace to me. That is a way for you to lift me up and be able to actually minister the way that I'm supposed to and edify the body. We need to be ministering and to be building one another up for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the sake of the body. It is for your fellow member in Christ. So I call us to love one another this way. Let's pray. God, we stop and ask that you would make these things be driven deep into our hearts. Please help us, Lord, to not sit on the sidelines, but rather, Lord, realize that our, our interactions, the way that we treat other people in our own church body matter a great deal. And not just to be nice, Lord, but to actually do one another's spiritual good, to minister, to build up. Would you teach us to do this in love, Lord? Would you teach us to be patient, gentle, forbearing with one another? Despite difficulties and differences, God, we are thankful that you have made us one. Please help us not to minister in parts. Or, Father, that the body would not just not minister at all. Would you teach us, each one of us, Lord, to be builders and ministers in your kingdom? We love you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.